Hello, and welcome to the CPA podcast, Mindful. My name is Eric Bullman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association and the host of this podcast. And this year has been about two things, really. Coronavirus and a reckoning when it comes to racial inequalities and systems all over the world. Right there at the center of both crises has been Donald Trump, the President of the United States whose handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and the racial tensions in the U.S. may have been significant contributing factors to his losing the presidential election just a few short weeks ago. So we can't ignore the fact that more than 70 million American citizens voted for him in this election, or that those same citizens elected him President four years or a lifetime ago. And it is the 2016 election that led directly to the subject of today's podcast. Because in 2016, immediately following Trump's election, searches spiked on Google at an unprecedented rate. How do I move to Canada? And while a 7,000% jump in searches led many of us to believe that we'd be welcoming an influx of disenchanted Americans, very few followed through and actually moved here. Today, I'm going to speak to one man who actually did. In fact, the title of his book is, I Actually Did It, Moving to Canada Because of Trump. So in his book, he lays bare the reasons for making the move, the difficulties he encountered in doing so, and he explains why you should never bring a plum on an airplane. He also goes into some detail about what he calls a barbaric practice, and we will get into this, uh, that is residents of Toronto wearing New York Yankees ball caps. He was a psychologist with a thriving practice in New York City on the day of Trump's inauguration. Now, he is approaching the end of his first year as a Canadian permanent resident. He's got a private psychology practice in Toronto, and now he has a book. I actually did it. Moving to Canada because of Trump is available on Amazon in both physical and digital form. It's an easy, often humorous read, and today on Mindful, it's my pleasure to welcome the author. My name is Stephen Shanebart, and I'm in private practice here in Toronto. Uh, Your private practice in Toronto. How is that going? You've uh, only been at it for a couple of years. You're just starting out now. Are you getting a large volume of clients right now? Uh, Well, I only became a Canadian permanent resident one year ago, November 2019. So in Canada, you're not allowed to own your own business or have a private practice until you are a permanent resident or citizen. So I only was able to begin even starting to build a private practice uh, a year ago, and it took a while to kind of get up and running. And now uh, it's it's, uh, getting there. It's almost full. Let me just start with one question, and it's the one that you bring up at the very beginning of your book. Yes. And that is, now that we have... And I recognize that we're speaking just after uh, Donald Trump has been defeated in an election. Yes. Uh, are you a genius or an idiot? <laughs> um, I've thought about that question because I had a, uh, a client of mine I worked with for many years when I first started working on this in New York. That's, it's in my book. That's where you're getting that from. He yeah. said, you will either turn out to be either a genius or an idiot. So, but now... Years later, now that it's done, I think it's, uh, it's going to turn out to be somewhere in between, maybe slightly towards the genius side, but not, not a genius. But it, it does look like the U.S. is not quite as stable and as hospitable a place to live as it once was. And I certainly don't regret the move. I think it, I think it was a good move in many ways. And you made it permanent just before 
we had this crazy global pandemic. Yes. Uh, which may have uh, altered your perspective in one way or another. I know it made it more difficult to see your son in New York, which is uh, obviously a terrible thing. Uh, But you also happen to be in a country that's handling it better than the United States is. Exactly right. So where do you come down on it there? Does that affect your thinking and and the success of the move? Yes. As you point out, there are very big pros and very big cons about this. I did not know... How could I have known that there was going to be a worldwide pandemic? So I moved here in January. Uh, my permanent residence status finished uh, was completed in November. And then in December, I uh, ended my lease in Brooklyn in New York, my apartment. Moved to Toronto full-time in January. And then in March, the shutdown started uh, happening as the coronavirus started to uh, take off. So I would not recommend moving to a foreign country in a new city in, uh, right before a pandemic and a lockdown start. It doesn't make it easy to meet new people when everyone's in bubbles and in lockdown. Uh, and also that the border was shut. And I, my plan was to see my son every other weekend. I was going to go to New York one weekend a month and he was going to come to Toronto to visit me one weekend a month. And, uh, the borders being shut, all of that went out the window. So that was, it was very difficult because I already felt some concern about moving away. It's one of the reasons I picked Toronto is it's only a one hour flight from New York. And, uh, and then to find it might as well have been New Zealand when the borders were shut. So uh, that, was, that was very difficult. And we've, uh, you know, we FaceTime and do things like that. So had I known it was going to happen, I might have timed it differently, but it's not a very uh, fair way to look at it psychologically. I wouldn't uh, counsel my clients to blame themselves for not predicting the coronavirus pandemic. So, so but it is unfortunate that I missed my boy. But on the other hand, it, it was, I definitely felt calmer and safer knowing I was in a country that was by and large respecting science. President Trump called uh, scientists idiots. I remember one of his rallies. And uh, to know that the government not perfectly. I know, I know Canada did not, it handled the pandemic very well compared to the U.S. and not as well as some other countries, but compared to the U.S. glowingly well. So that felt good to be in the hands of at least a reasonably competent government in terms of the coronavirus instead of, a, I thought Trump was looking out for his own political interests and keeps saying, you know, it's going to go away. It's going to go away. He's been saying that since March. And I guess he's right. The timing is wrong. He says it's going to go away soon, but you know, it'll go away. But <laughs> not, not in the time frame he was talking about, not after so many uh, thousands of people have died unnecessarily in the U.S. And I think you touch on this in your book a little bit, right? That <clears throat> the differences between Canadians and Americans. And I think we in Canada tend to get a little bit of a sense of smug superiority in the sense yeah. that we're handling things so much better than the United States. In a lot of ways, that's kind of like saying, well, you know, at least my kitchen is on fire, but not my whole house. Right? <laughs> I, we, one way to look at it, yes. You know, and we we do compare ourselves to the U.S. in a lot right. of ways. And at the moment, uh, we're certainly coming out looking uh, favorably upon ourselves in comparison. Uh, but I think, by and large, we are very similar populations mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the way we perceive the world, the way we go about doing things. You know, as you say in your book, we're just a little more polite about it. Right, right. Uh, one thing I would add, is, and these are general tendencies, uh, you know, they don't apply to every individual, of course, but 
I think the Canada emphasizes more structure and orderliness, and uh, right isn't that in your Constitution Act? Uh, good government, peace order. What is it, peace order and good government? I think that sounds right. I <laughs> decided to yeah. uh, word and, for word. But. And the Declaration of Independence in the U.S. is about uh, the pursuit of liberty, and and so America is a little more individualistic, a little more about individual freedoms, even if it causes some turbulence. I think relative. I'm painting in broad strokes, and Canada is a little bit more about keeping good order, keeping things, you know, running well, and calmly. So you're going to have, each one has their strengths and weaknesses. And certainly with compliance with the pandemic, the emphasis on following the rules and, and uh, keeping order is going to favor treating the coronavirus very well. And you're going to have more people in the U.S. saying, I want my individual freedom and not complying as well. So in this way, I think it favors Canada in terms of the way that people manage the virus and culturally. It's very good. In other ways, though, I think what Canadians sometimes overlook is in other ways, the emphasis on, in, in other topics, the emphasis on individual rights may have certain uh, advantages over a more uh, orderly kind of culture. So, I, again, I'm exact, you know, I'm, I'm painting broad strokes, but I'm just saying in this case, I think it's one of the reasons you have uh, a better situation in, in Canada, as well as the government is just, you know, not delusional, which is a big advantage to have a government that's not delusional. That is a plus. Uh, we're happy about, at the very least, that. Uh, right. Now, right. tell me a little bit about your, you had a psychological practice in New York City. Yes. Now that there is a pandemic and a lot of people are doing teletherapy via Zoom and that sort of thing, are you mm -hmm. still seeing some of those clients that you had in New York? I am. I am. And uh, it's a very strange world, as it is for everybody else. Strange new world we're in because I was talking with my clients in New York and some of them wanted to continue. And we were talking about how it won't be the same over if I do telehealth, tele, you know, uh, telesessions and um, because uh, it'll be by, by video and, and then all sessions for it, right. Were, were by video everywhere, whether I, whether I was in Toronto doing it with Torontonians or in New York. And then I came back finally to visit New York and I said to my clients, you know, the plan was to go see them, in person again, uh, uh, well, in New York, to have in-person sessions while I was there visiting. And my client was very funny. He said, well, I'm not going to see you in person. You'll be in New York, but you might as well be in Toronto because we have to do it by video anyway. We could be one block away from each other in New York and, or in Toronto. It makes no difference at all, you know, as soon as I move for a while. So it's kind of funny how that all worked out. So, yes, I do see some people in New York still. But to see them exactly the same way I'm seeing the people in Toronto. And the people in Toronto, I know you're doing some work now uh, with refugees. Uh, can yeah. you tell me a little bit about that work that you're doing in Toronto? Right. Well, currently I'm not, but I, it, I may again, of course, and I, I have been. But I, uh, in, in Toronto, I was doing assessments for political refugees, people who left, they were from Turkey, the people I met, fleeing uh, Erdogan's government. So, and he has been cracking down on uh, people in the media, people criticizing him. He's, he, so a number of people he and his thugs, his, uh, the police you know, working for him, uh, would beat up well, newspaper people and people uh, protesting and for their rights, religious minorities. And so a lot of them had were fleeing to Canada for their safety, for their lives. And I did psychosocial assessments, psychological assessments to see whether they had uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and associated conditions. And it would go to the, uh, the courts in Canada who were deciding whether to allow these people to become 
Canadians and, and as refugees because of the trauma they experienced. Now, is that a different system than they have in the United States? If somebody applies for refugee status in the U.S., do they go through a similar psychosocial assessment? Well, I never, uh, I, although I did work with immigrants in the United States, it wasn't in terms of uh, political refugee status. I, I know the U.S. has political refugee status, and does allow political refugees. I can also tell you that the government of Donald Trump cut down severely on the number of political refugees allowed in the United States. So there are still some, but they're much less than there used to be as a result of the Trump administration. No doubt. How, how does that process work exactly? Somebody comes, uh, makes a claim, says, I have been tortured by the Erdogan government because I was a journalist taking photos at this uh, event. Exactly. exactly. And then, uh, they go through a process before they get to you. Do, are you one of the initial assessors? No, they, they get a, uh, a lawyer an immigration lawyer who is uh, advocating for them in courts. And then as part of that case that the lawyer is presenting for their client who is trying to attain uh, political asylum in Canada, they, um, they ask a consultant like me, a psychologist, to do a psychological assessment to see whether they have trauma, PTSD, and other conditions as a result of it. Well, it's a very poignant, among the most poignant work I've done here on um, Really, all of them did. Many started crying in my office, talked about being uh, imprisoned for days and beaten up. And then a lot of them talked about situations like flashbacks, things like seeing uh, one was at a a street party, I think in the Danforth here, and a Canadian Torontonian policeman came over very friendly, saying hi, and he immediately went into a panic attack. His heart started pounding, and because he just sees the uniform and instinctively, I mean, without even thought, just reacts for, you know, safety for his life. And, and the police officer said, what's the matter? I'm just trying to be friendly, say hi. And it was just very moving to me to see, like, uh, the trauma within him uh, con- um, contrasted with the sort of kindness and friendliness of the Canadian policeman. Part of your book was written by an immigration lawyer. Was right. she somebody who would have been uh, helping these Turkish refugees? No, that was just uh, a, a firm, a, a immigration firm that uh, does uh, American and Canadian immigration. They're not for refugees. That, that part was just for the more general public that is considering immigrating to Canada as the conventional way, not as political refugees, which is a whole separate category. The Canadian government allows for a certain number of refugees, and then the rest have to go through the conventional programs like me and have to uh, uh, meet the criteria. And there are a lot of criteria to meet and a lot of hoops to jump through. And uh, I honestly found that section of your book exhausting. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, just reading what you had to go through in order to become accepted here in Canada, how it's more difficult even as a PhD than it is as a recent grad student, you know, yes. experience versus yeah. 20 months yeah. experience. And so I, need, I need a psychologist to help me with my own PTSD about <laughs> the, the process or process, as some of you guys say. Right. Yeah, it, it's truly incredible. And I, the part I found most incredible and most frustrating, because I imagined myself having to do this. Yeah, how about you? Which one? There's so many. Which one? <laughs> Going back to 1989, to try yes. to find the people who supervised you at that time to say right. you had enough hours in order to be able to qualified to, to emigrate. Can you walk me through that process just a little bit here? You're somebody is a psychologist in the United States, New York City, wants to move to Toronto, and it's three years later. You're right. there. Well, 
Yes, the first thing they should do is uh, probably go to a psychiatrist and get a large prescription of benzodiazepines and, uh, <laughs> and then learn various uh, mindfulness techniques and uh, progressive muscle relaxation and breathing exercises just to prepare for the process. So that's I'm being a little, just for make it official, being sarcastic mostly. <laughs> So, okay, <laughs> the process, I don't know how much to tell. I mean, it really is exhausting, but there's an organization, uh, ASPBB, I think, an Association of State and Provincial Psychology Board. I may have that wrong, but something like that, which, which the uh, College of Psychologists of Ontario uses, uh, um, kind of they act as a kind of a go-between and assesses the criteria, whether one person licensed in one state can be transferred over to another or in this case, we call it licensed in New York and in Ontario, it's like a registered psychologist. But they, they, they're the ones who are checking your credentials, which I understand. But the, the process is, uh, and I really don't want to make any enemies. I really, I really think it's in the best interest of everyone to have a very efficient process, a good vetting process. It's very important. But I also think it should be sensible and efficient and, and not sometimes counterproductive. And sometimes I felt it was not sensible and efficient. And at times I did think it was counterproductive, such as the focus was on whether I have enough experience, clinical experience, to, to transfer over to Ontario. And uh, I had been in the field 20, over 20 years in private practice after my getting licensed in New York. And supervising therapists in training, teaching, psychology courses. I had gone to a, a four-year psychoanalytic institute, the William Allison White Institute in New York, founded by Harry Stack Sullivan or Fromm. That's postdoctoral training, four years. None of that mattered. None of that was of any concern to them. What they wanted to check, what, what the criteria was, if I had enough uh, experience, clinical experience, was the number of hours that I worked on my internship year in, my, uh, in a hospital in my PhD program, which was in 1989. And the forms filled out about how many hours I saw. They had no interest in the thousands of, hundreds, I would say, at least patients, if not thousands, over 20-year career. So the numbers were, uh, they said I, it was, they checked and they said it was insufficient number of hours. And these are, were recorded on paper in 1989. It was before things were stored on computers. Right. So the woman from the organization said, well, see if your supervisor is still around, maybe. Because I knew I had done enough hours. I, I, you know, I had met all the criteria of New York State. It's an APA, American Psychological Association approved internship. I completed it successfully. You know, I was licensed in New York. So anyway, I said, well, I contacted the supervisor. How do, it's 30 years later. How do, what if she's dead? So the woman was very helpful, though, and called her up and looked on the Internet and found that she's still practicing in Brooklyn. So then I called her up. And what was very strange is I had been somewhat friendly with this person. I had gone to her house for dinner with the supervisor, and she really didn't remember me. I mean, she barely did. And first she said she would help me sign off on the hours 30 years later, and then she changed her mind and said, no, I'm not comfortable. And I thought, dear God, my whole plan to move to Canada is going to be completely stopped and uh, rejected because she doesn't remember me for some reason. And Anyway, then I looked at the sheet of hours again. Someone else who's much more detail-oriented than me made me think about it. And I looked at it, and I realized that they had computed the number of hours incorrectly, the organization, in the first place. And I already had sufficient hours. 
So the whole thing, that whole process delayed me by three months, just, just that before that was resolved. And a really uh, ironic point was when I, I said, why am I having so much trouble? And she said, well, one reason is because you were so far back that it wasn't recorded on computers and it's on paper trails and that's more difficult. If you were a recent graduate, it would be recorded on computers. We wouldn't have this problem as much. So I said, you mean to tell me this process to, to vet whether people have enough experience, clinical experience, favors recent graduates who, <laughs> recent graduates who, who are straight out of school, let's say, or you know, soon, relatively soon out of school, it's computerized, then graduates like me with 20 years experience, or, you know, it was on paper, and she said, that's correct. So, and I said, that makes no sense. And she said, well, that's the way we do it. And I couldn't really argue with that. That is the way they do it. So I spent almost a year, that whole process of getting finally registered. And as a psychologist in Ontario. In my case, and not everybody, the Canadian government, this is not the psychology organizations, they needed me, I needed to require one year of work experience in Canada. I had, if I didn't get one year of work experience, I would not have been eligible to immigrate to Canada in my situation. So to get the one year, first I had to become licensed because I can't work as a psychologist and get the experience until I'm registered. So one year, you know, it took a while to get registered. Then I worked for a year as a psychologist. So I'm Fully, fully uh, registered, worked for a year as a psychologist in Ontario. Then it comes time to apply to the government to be an immigrant. Uh, and what do they do, the federal government? They ask me to prove that I'm a psychologist. Again, I have to go back to graduates, to the graduate school transcripts, and get it certified to just pay this organization to check my credentials. That takes, uh, you know, months. And God forbid one part of the psychology, or, you know, one part of the organization a bureaucracy in Canada can, can communicate with another one, you know, because I have been working as a psychologist in Ontario, but it might as well have never, never done any of that as far as the immigration uh, bureaucracy was concerned. So it was quite a, uh, something out of a Kafka novel or something. You had to take an English test as part of this. Yes. <laughs> very poorly on the written part uh, in comparison yes. to the others. And then you yes. went ahead and wrote a book anyway, you know, right. which I, I feel is very ballsy of you. <laughs> Thank you, but I would like to approach that a little bit differently. <laughs> I always thought I have have a PhD, and I went to uh, Cornell University and Ivy League School and graduated with honors. I always thought I, I I could, and I'm not I'm not trying to be bragging. I just I always thought I was somewhat. I scored on the English uh, writing test for the immigration slightly above the average immigrant uh, coming into Canada. And I only speak English. It's the only language I can speak coming from New York. And I have uh, written things my whole life. And I, so I was really shocked that, you know, that was kind of, I, I thought, wow, like there are two possibilities. Either this test is not quite accurately measuring my writing ability, or I'm not nearly as a good writer as I thought. And so I wrote the book and I even write in the book, well, you tell me what you think. So I'm pretty confident that, that I, I, the test was not an accurate measure. In my case. I suspect that is the case. I, I thought you were a, uh, you're a great writer. It's a oh, very thank entertaining you. book. It's very compelling, uh, quite humorous in parts as well. Uh, now, I was thinking, though, about that test, because you mentioned in the book uh, that it's basically a test for writing emails and that you have the tendency to be, be very short and succinct and that mm. sort of thing. And yeah. I will say, as a Canadian, that I write novels as emails. Oh. I cannot censor myself when I send emails for the most part. 
Uh, I tend to write all of the things that I think into one email so that we don't end up with an email thread. And I would rather have one very long That's one than 30. Wonderful. If you're ever having a day where you're not feeling so good on your self-esteem, maybe you can register for the test and take it. And I bet you would score very high and it would help you feel good. <laughs> I probably one day that's uh, that's something I'll do. Although I don't want to go through any of the rest of that process. Uh, right. It was exhausting just reading about it. I don't have yes. any intention of, of planning to start myself. Right, right. Yeah, I wonder about that as well. I, I understand. I think it's good they have a language requirement, but I don't know if you really need to test someone who, who only speaks English uh, or only speaks French. Uh, to, to three hours if there's a way to kind of expedite the process for people that speak from English-speaking countries. Maybe they could have an interview. I just wonder about ways to do it. See, all of these things, besides it personally being very uh, grueling and difficult uh, for, for me, is I don't think it's good for Canada. And I talk about that in the book because Canada has a, has a relatively small population and really needs low birth rate and really needs immigrants to grow. And, uh, for its economy mm -hmm. and quality immigrants, quality, you know, people, of, uh, their approach is very smart. Uh, you, to, you have to offer, have something to offer the Canadian economy, educational level, uh, be able to speak the language, being younger. In all ways, Canada is smart about its criteria and what's good for Canada. But I don't think having such a uh, bureaucratic, uh, ridiculous, in some ways, uh, process, like what I'm prescribing, I must be driving away some quality people. I think a lot of people would have given up. You know, I think I was more the outlier that I that I was so determined to plunge forward. They would have been exasperated. Well, now that you've been through it all and your reason for leaving and coming to Canada is going away, the immediate threat of Donald Trump looks like it is on its way out, kicking mm -hmm. and screaming, but it's going. Mm -hmm. Are you staying or are you going back? Right, I am staying. And uh, I, I do get this question at, at each interview, and I uh, say the same thing. I really don't agree with this sentiment that, oh, uh, once by, if Biden wins, everything will go back to normal, everything will be fine. Of course, I think it's, a, it's vastly preferable, and I'm glad, very, very happy that Biden won, very happy. I, uh, I even celebrate in front of the US consulate with some friends in Toronto the night the election was called. But, this does not mean everything's going to be fine for many reasons. Uh, for one thing, I was reading today, Trump is saying he's going to start his own uh, PAC, a political action committee, to, uh, to, to kind of dominate and lead the Republican Party. One thing we know, this guy is not going to remain silent. He right. needs much attention. And he's there to cause trouble. This is the person that started the birth movement, uh, putting questions on the legitimacy of Barack Obama. He's doing the same thing with the election. Anything he doesn't like, he just makes a big, uh, a big stink and questions legitimacy, and it causes major uh, dysfunction in society. Also, the, the 40, it's not only about Trump, but Trumpism. The 40, what did he win? 48% of the vote, I believe. Right. This Biden won by a razor's edge. So people who, who, who think, oh, everything's fine now, are, are fooling themselves. There's a few thousand votes the other way, uh, you know, and who's to say what future elections will hold? Imagine if there was no coronavirus, a normal situation. I think Trump would have probably won uh, because that probably hurt him a little bit of vote. So with a little bit of vote. So, and, and also the government is so uh, paralyzed. The Republicans aren't even recognizing uh, Biden's victory. So you have a very dysfunctional government, and you have a, a people, a large percentage of the people, I believe, are not really using their democracy well uh, in terms of their judgment. And some of them, I, I think, want more of an authoritarian. I'm talking about the people there, like a Trump, 
than necessarily they're really devoted to a democratic process. And they're happy to, I mean, they're, well, what the Republican Party's doing, right? not respecting the process. So this is a mess, not only for now, in the future. This is not a system to bet on and say, oh, well, I'm, I have no reason to, to have any doubts. Everything looks like smooth sailing from here. That, that would be absurd. I, I think, who's to say who the next person might be voted in and uh, could be worse? And democracies do die. I talk about that in my book. I don't know what you want to get into it, but I mean, I run. Oh no, my- yeah, I, I, you write about the fact that someone worse could come along, right? Basically, and, and this is an argument I'm seeing a lot, and I tend to agree with it, that Trump was held <laughs> in check by his own incompetence in some yeah. way, yes. right? That he didn't understand government, didn't want to understand government, didn't care to know things. Right. But somebody with similar tendencies, similar authoritarian tendencies, similar white supremacist tendencies and that sort of thing, who was smarter about it, who could yeah. uh, navigate those waters better, could do an awful lot more damage. And the stage is set for that to take place. That's that's uh, exactly right. And uh, someone who could be maybe because Trump would attract people, but it would also uh, push people away very much. So someone who was just as dangerous or, or even more so. Uh, but maybe a little more charming to reach a, a higher percentage of the population on his side, I think could overturn the American system. And uh, that, uh, in my book, I talk about my family history, and that's part of what informed my viewpoint. My father was in the Holocaust and uh, was from Poland. And uh, in, not in Germany, Hitler was voted in by the people in a dem- democratic government. They chose him. It wasn't a it wasn't a military takeover or anything. He was he charmed the people and then he dismantled the democracy and made it into a dictatorship. I don't think the United States is going to be anything like Nazi Germany and nearly as bad. And I don't think that Trump is as bad as Hitler or even close. But it, my point is, it doesn't have to be that bad. It could be ten percent as bad as all of that, and it would still be horrible and worth leaving. And and that could happen. I mean, I think the democracy is hanging by a thread in the United States. And that's not something to say when people go, whoa, what's the problem? Why don't you go back? Biden's president. It doesn't change the fact that democracy is hanging by a thread there and the future is very uncertain. As well as the current system is just deadlocked and paralyzed between the parties. It's kind of shocking to see just how separate the two parties are in the US and the followers that go with them, right? I've been talking a lot with uh, some psychologists here in Canada about violent radicalization, uh, you know, misinformation online and, you know, these sort of polarizing views. Yeah. And it strikes me. And what a lot of them are saying is that right now you have two p- different groups of people who not only don't agree politically and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. think the other side is evil, but they actually have their own information. Yes. Yeah different information than the other people have, right? right. So the one group goes online and they get, um, you know, the Breitbart's and OAN and here in Canada, mm-hmm. Rebel Media, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And then the other side gets it from the mainstream, CBC, MSNBC, right. CNN, that kind of thing. Right. And they have no... Separate worlds. Right. Like the Venn diagram doesn't cross over hardly right. anywhere when it, when, right. you know? That's right. Yeah. And that seems to me to be the thing that's going to be most difficult to pull out of both in the U S and in Canada, because it trickles up here. Well, I want to, I actually want to say something about that. Today. Um, I'm working on a, on an op-ed I'm going to submit and hope, I hope it gets published. I'm going to try in the Toronto star. 
I, I'm writing, and one of my points is now that I'm here in Canada, and I care very much about Canada, and you're absolutely right, the same kinds of things here are in the U.S. are present in Canada, but I don't think Canada is far, quite as far along that path yet as the United States in terms of the polarization. It's here, but I don't think it's reached that same level yet. And I would be very, very sad. Uh, first of all, I'd feel like, why did I do this? But also for Canada and Canadians, if they followed in the U.S.'s footsteps. And the point of the op-ed is that I think Canada can, I'm hoping Canada will take some steps to try to uh, be, be proactive and prevent it from happening. It, it, there's it, this feeling like, well, we're just above everything that happens in the U.S. may work against you if you're uh, complacent in it. Social media, as you pointed out, and all the... Uh, echo chambers that people are hearing that, that doesn't stop at the U.S. border. And there are all these conspiracy theorists uh, here and um, just like anywhere else and the, and the different groups only hearing what they want to say. And it, social media thrives on agitating people and having them make posts and argue with each other and, and all of that. That's a bit, you know, part of the business model. There's no reason why Canada would be immune to this. So I was thinking, I, I just wrote some ideas that, uh, and I think there are so many more that Canadians can do to try to be proactive. For instance, one idea I had was, why not have people, like kids in school, have uh, send to kids in school people representing the different parties, the NDP, the Conservatives, the Liberals, and they would come together and like visit kids in schools as a, as a team, the three of them, and just explain like how the election process works and dem democratic government, and that they may represent different parties, but they're all Canadians and they're all participating together in this democracy. Like instill and strengthen these kind of common values that make you Canadian and identity before, because to counteract or sort of protect yourself as much as you can from these forces, which uh, have you know, broken apart the United States and are affecting Canada. So that's just one idea. I have some others because I, I really like to see this country thrive and not fall down the same. Oh. I like that. An early emphasis on civics, really. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And a common identity and that we are first and foremost part of the same team because a lot of forces out there like social media and just people's uh, psychology, this is psychology, are, are going to thrive on polarization and tribalism. And if you do nothing and just say, well, we're Canadians, it, it, you know, we have nothing to worry about. I think you're, uh, you're being foolish and I care too much about my new country to not try to uh, speak up. Now, as a psychologist, uh, you, you cited in your book the Goldwater Rule, right? The yes. notion that, you know, as a psychologist who works outside and, and who can observe, say, a politician, right? In that case, it was Barry Goldwater, and I think this yes. uh, you can observe him from a distance, but you can't diagnose him because you can't sit down with him. So we exactly do that, right? Right. Um, and then there was a book written uh, that you also make mention of by a number of psychologists and psychiatrists in the first case of Donald Trump. Right. Right. Yes. And then right before the election, I think maybe the most, I guess, knowledgeable voice to come out of the whole thing, I think was Mary Trump. Yes. Who's a clinical psychologist, right? A clinical psychologist, but who yes. has also lived around that family and that man for her yes. entire life. Right. Really could put it into a nutshell. Did you watch a lot of what she was saying? I watched some of it, yes. I, I, I watched some of it. I have to uh, limit myself too much because I find it distressing to study Trump's, uh, you know, it's like, uh, so, but uh, I did watch some interviews with her and certainly uh, from what I know, I think she has a very pers uh, perceptive uh, position and very perceptive things to say.
I don't know where we go from here, but it looks like you have some ideas. Share one more, one more with me before we go, how Canada can start to nip this polarization thing in the butt. Well, another one was, uh, as an American coming here, I sometimes see things that Canadians are too close to see when you, when you get an outsider's perspective. And one thing I was struck by is how Canadians don't, relatively speaking, of course, uh, I'm only saying relatively, they don't travel that much within Canada. I think because it's so far and the flights are expensive. And in the U.S., you have 330 million people and the flights are cheaper, I believe, because there's more volume and they can, you know, lower the prices. And your country's huge, but doesn't have a big population. So I think a lot of people uh, have been to uh, more European countries than provinces. I think they go and travel to Europe and they'll say, but oh, I've never been, you know, outside of my province or something like that. So I'm thinking... Wouldn't it be good if the government could somehow subsidize in some way uh, interprovincial travel so that people could spend uh, more time getting to know the other provinces and costs would not be prohibitive? Another th idea I have is uh, exchange programs. Why not, like, in, let's say you have kids in high school, have them live as a Torontonian uh, high schooler, live with a rural Manitoban family or a rural Albertan family and have them come and spend a, a half a year in Toronto and see that we're, we're all people. We're not just these abstractions somewhere else that you'll never get to meet. And maybe that will create more of a sense of a bonding and less divisiveness. Because again, the whole idea is to create a sense of cohesion and not let the forces of tribalism, which have ripped apart the U.S., take hold here. So the little, and these are just starting points for ideas, but there are things to do. And if you don't do anything, I don't think that's going to be good. I think it's good to be smart and proactive. Okay, one last thing I want to ask you about. Yeah. And we, we spoke about this before I started recording on this interview. Sure. Yankee hats. <laughs> All right. Oh, God. I get to finally talk about this. You yes. finally have to talk about Yankee hats. Now, yeah. you being a Mets fan in New York, do yeah. you hate the Yankees? Yes, I hate the Yankees. Okay, I am a Red Sox fan. I also hate the Yankees. Oh, you're my friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but you, you talk about seeing a lot of Yankees hats in Toronto. Yes. And how barbaric. that is. A barbaric practice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And because the Blue Jays are, of course, the team in Toronto, and they are in the division with the Red Sox and the Yankees, and we should hate the Yankees for that reason. Or at least not actively support the, the competition, the, the direct rivals of your own city's team. Yes. And I, I just want to defend Torontonians for a moment on this front. Okay. That is just try, but you're, going, you're facing an uphill battle with me, sir. <laughs> this is the way I see it. The Toronto Maple Leafs are yes. a Toronto team. Yes. That is Toronto's team, and the rest of Canada hates the Maple Leafs. You know, we're Senators fans here in Ottawa. You're an Oilers fan in Edmonton. You hate the Leafs because that's Toronto's team. Right. Blue Jays and the yes. Raptors are Canada's team. Yes, yes. Right? That right. is the only game in town. And yes. I think back in the day where you had the Expos and the Blue Jays, yes. there was a lot more specifically Blue Jays pride in Toronto. Of course, they'd won two World Series in a row. Yes. That made a big difference yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, but since then, it has become a Canadian thing. Well, so far, your premise is sound. I agree with it, yes. <laughs> and I think Toronto <laughs> residents no longer see the Blue Jays as their team and their team alone, and they're free to go explore other so, relationships with I understand. So, uh, so that would mean by extrapolation – they're not they're actually being more anti-canadian 
since it's Canada's team now, by wearing an American team's hat going around against their own, not only their own city, but their own country's only baseball team. They're, they're even more barbaric because they're not only against their own city, but against their own country. That's the, my, my take on it. <laughs> that, does, that does make them sound like terrible people. And <laughs> I think it's more, to be fair, I think it's more naivete. The Yankees are uh, so popular that they're a brand, I think. And I think a lot of uh, uh, people don't even know, like they don't, probably don't even understand what they're wearing. They, maybe, maybe they think it means New York and it's fashionable, but, uh, but I wish they would educate themselves and realize like, hey, you're in, uh, your, or your own country has one team and your own city has one team and it's not the team that you're wearing. I don't know, that's my own thing, but no, each I, I, is I, own. You know, I, I totally buy it. I think a lot of people wear Yankees hats because they're Jay-Z fans. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I think that's what happens. And I, I had this experience happen to me, and I say this cognizant uh, as somebody who's wearing a Green Bay Packers ball cap right now. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I didn't. I used to be in radio, and I did an event at a tool and equipment store. Mm-hmm. And there was a representative from DeWalt there who mm-hmm. had a big demonstration that they put on, and he gave me a DeWalt ball cap. And so I wore it, and I wore it for a few, maybe a few weeks. And people used to come up to me and say, oh, you're a fan of somebody. I can't remember the name anymore. There was a NASCAR driver who was sponsored by DeWalt. And they mm-hmm. assumed that wearing the DeWalt hat, and I was like, no, it's just the only tool of right. company I right. know anything about. I don't right. know anything about the others. But no, they, they assumed that whatever this NASCAR driver was that was sponsored right. by DeWalt, that's why you would wear that uh, article of clothing. So I stopped wearing it because I didn't want to get into a discussion about how I know nothing about NASCAR or uh-huh. tools or cars uh-huh. in general. <laughs> gotcha. 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 Well, I've become, uh, I also root for the Blue Jays now. I'm a Telemets fan. I don't think I'll ever stop, but I also uh, root for the Blue Jays, gone to some games and uh, I like having a team in uh, each league. It's, uh, having a team still, in both leagues yeah. is good. Yeah. And like my identity is like, just like with baseball, it's good. Uh, I've grown. I have more more I belong to and personally too. I, I belong to both two countries. I care about them both. And uh, I guess I've been, maybe I've been a little critical sounding in some of these things, but it's because uh, I really, I love Canada and I, I'm investing in it and I want it to thrive. Dr. Stephen Shanebart, author of I Actually Did It, Moving to Canada Because of Trump. Thank you for your time, Dr. Shanebart. The book is a fun and easy read on a variety of topics including the ones we touched on today, many we didn't, and the perils of plums on planes. It is available on Amazon in both physical and digital copies. Mindful is produced, edited, written, and hosted by me, Eric Bowman. Our theme song is Avenues by David Taylor of Toronto. That's our show for today. Join us for the next one when we return to our COVID in the Canadian Winter series. We'll be headed to the University of Regina to talk to Dr. Heather Hagestavropoulos about teletherapy in the time of the coronavirus. <laughs>